0: Amen. And kids seem to know what they're doing. They're uh, they're going to head downstairs. We've got fabulous people in the lobby who are going to. Oh, look at that! They don't even need them. There they go. They know what they're doing. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. It's good to be back. It uh, it was good. It's good to be away. Pastor... Where's Pastor Bill? I've lost him. There he is. Uh, in in your prayer this morning, you left a little space for us to be thankful and. Uh, What came to my heart was to be thankful for the opportunity uh, to be away with my kids. You know, I haven't, I would say being a pastor and a dad is not an easy thing uh, to do all the time. I'm not convinced that I've always done both those things simultaneously uh, well and uh, was very thankful uh, for the chance to be away with with my children and um, it was good. It's good to be back. Uh, It's good to be back and it's good to be back into the Sermon on the Mount and uh, for a variety of reasons, it's been a while since we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, hasn't it, with, uh, with my sabbatical and then uh, the, the Easter season. So for a variety of reasons, perhaps a, a minute or two of reorientation would be helpful. Probably the most important thing for you to know about the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly, I, I understand, we probably have some folks uh, joining us who maybe missed the first several sermons in the series most important thing for you to know about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's not a sermon about how to get saved. It's a story about how saved people live. And boy, is that distinction ever important. Um, if you think that this sermon is a sermon about how to get saved, if you try to turn it into a sermon about how to get saved, uh, you're going to invent the world's worst religion. So knock it off. Uh, you're going to be thinking about all kinds of things that you, you can't do. Uh, without the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't do that. Most important thing, I think, is to notice the preamble. So uh, Sermon on the Mount, for those of you who are new uh, and wondering where that is, uh, you can start flipping towards Matthew 5. The story begins with these very important words. Seeing the crowds, hear that, seeing the crowds, Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples Came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. So that's the preamble. And that's very helpful because that is cluing us into the fact that this is not a sermon for the unconverted crowds. This is a sermon for the followers of Jesus. So everything we're talking about here in this series is actually downstream from the issue of conversion. It's important for for us to understand. This is not a sermon about how to get saved. It's a sermon about how saved people live as the followers of Jesus in the world. And that's why uh, we gave this sermon series the subtitle, The Beautiful Tune We Love So Well and Play So Poorly, because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, in a sense, is aspirational. It tells us what Christianity is supposed to sound like, even though we know full well it doesn't very often sound like this, does it? Um, Sermon on the Mount says, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. How are you doing with that? Right? More often than not, we, we hate those who persecute us, and we would love the opportunity to run over the people who hate us with our cars. Right? That's, you know, that's the truth. And so we come back to the Sermon on the Mount again and again and again, like we come back to our piano tuner or our guitar tuner. We come back to be reminded of what these notes are supposed to sound like. We read the Sermon on the Mount. We hear sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. So, and when we do, every time it seems uh, we notice something in our life that is out of tune. That's the whole point. And so we repent, we repent and we ask God for grace and forgiveness, mercy and for help so that by one degree of glory, little by little, we can begin to look and sound more like Jesus. That's, that's the goal. Now in terms of structure, uh, the Sermon on the Mount begins with a description of the essential character, the foundational kind of character of the Christian from which everything else uh, will spring, which will be derivative. You find that in verses 1 to 12. That, of course, is a section we often refer to as the Beatitudes. And then in the next handful of verses, verses 13 to 16, we get a description of the essential Christian influence in the world. That's the bit about salt and light. And then after that, we have a quite an, a number of particular applications. The Sermon on the Mount is an application-heavy sermon. Jesus corrects their understanding of a number of biblical principles. You know those, right? He'll say, you've heard that it said, uh, do not murder. But I tell you that if you hate your brother, if you revile your brother in your heart, then you've committed murder. Or uh, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if any man looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her. Do you see You see what Jesus is doing there? He is clarifying what they think they know about how to live as the people of God in the world. Why? Because he's just told them to be salt and light. Being salt and light is about maintaining a distinctive Christian presence and a distinctive Christian witness in an increasingly dark and hostile world. And so they need to know this stuff. We need to know this stuff. And now here in the passage that we're we're going to jump back in with uh, this morning, we see that the followers of Jesus also need to have their thinking corrected with respect to the intended permanence and durability of covenant marriage. Because this too is intended by Jesus to be part and parcel of our witness to the world. So let's get into that. If you have your Bible with you, uh, and you've probably been flipping towards the Sermon on the Mount, wondering where are we going to land here, uh, we're going to land at Matthew 531 to 33 But let me pray briefly before we begin. Heavenly Father, I know that this passage can be particularly hurtful, devastating even for many people in the church. When we hit this note on the tuner, many of us immediately feel convicted. We feel as though we are out of tune, and Lord, we may feel like we don't have an opportunity to get back in tune. We may feel like a note was struck in our past, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that that we can't undo. And so, Lord, we can feel the weight of that. And yet, Lord, the truth is, if anyone is feeling that way this morning, they're in good company, we have all felt ourselves out of tune as we have Worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount. That is what it is here for. And so, Lord, we pray that a spirit of grace and mercy would be in the house of the Lord today. And yet, Lord, we need to talk about this because there's a real opportunity for us in this culture, in this culture that is losing their understanding of what marriage is, in this culture that is losing their understanding of what love, of what gender, of what even sexuality is. Lord, there is an opportunity for us to shine a witness of distinction. And so we need this bracing word, but we need your help to hear it. And so we ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's word, Matthew 5, 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, I want to look at this passage today in terms of three divisions. First of all, I want to look at it in terms of the distinctive principle. There's a distinctive principle. If we want to live distinct lives, we need to keep a list of these distinctive principles. Then secondly, there's a recognized exception. If we want to be a merciful community, a community that doesn't break people, we need to be aware of when there are exceptions given for distinctive principles. And then finally, we'll spend some time talking about the potential witness. Because if we can live this way, if we, if we can have a community that manifests this sort of Jesus value and Jesus commitment, then we're going to have a witness. We're going to have an opportunity. We're going to shine a light in this increasingly dark and lost world. So, first of all, then, the distinctive principle, look again at verse thirty one. It was also said, "Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce." Now, if you're a Bible reader, e- well, even if you have your Bible open, you probably notice uh, there's a, a, a set of small brackets, right? It's not a direct quote, but there's like a something there that indicates probably in your text, that Jesus is referring kind of to an Old Testament text. Well, the the Old Testament text that he's kind of or sort of referring to is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Let me read that to you. It'll be up on the screen, too. When a man takes a wife and marries her, this is Moses writing. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that's an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, close quote. That's why I said sort of. See, what, what Moses is actually doing in this passage is trying to regulate and order and limit and, and, and stop the chaos of what was actually happening within the Israelite community with respect to divorce. What was happening is that divorce was, was willy-nilly. A man had a fight with his wife. I mean, he, he found something displeasing in her. I don't know how your marriage is, but have you ever found something displeasing in your spouse? How many displeasing things have you noticed this morning? Uh, And so that's, so people were finding, you know, men were finding, and then of course, keep in mind, all of this is directed at men because uh, divorce in that culture was about men sending their wives away. And so men were sending their wives away willy nilly over things they found displeasing. But then of course, you know what happens, right? A man calms down and realizes the grass isn't greener on the other side. And, uh, and so he says, you know, gee, I, I, miss, I miss my wife. And, but of course, by this time, because in that culture, there was a woman had to be married. She'd married somebody else. But he thinks, well, maybe I can get her back. And so now there's a wife uh, who's gone to marry this other person. coming. And Moses says, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And so he imposes some structure, some order, some limitations, because women were, were being traded back and, and forth. They were being treated in a cruel and undignified manner. And so some regulation was required. And so Moses says... Divorce can't be willy-nilly. And by the way, I I said willy-nilly now twice and some people are laughing. Is that not a thing anymore? Does willy-nilly not a... I say willy-nilly all the time. It can't just be off the cuff. Is that the... I don't know. Whatever willy-nilly is for millennials, it can't be that. Okay? It can't be emotional. Can't just have a bad day or a rough morning. There needs to be legitimate grounds... And there needs to be a clear, just, and deliberate process. That's what Moses actually said. Now, what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5 is quoting what people have been saying about what Moses said. Look again very carefully, Matthew 5.31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Well, if you know the Sermon on the Mount, you know that sometimes Jesus is referring to the actual Old Testament, but more often than not, he's actually referring to what the teachers of the day were saying about the Old Testament. Do you see what the leaders of the day have done? They've kept the piece about process, and they've deleted the part about legitimate grounds. And so this is Jesus sticking it back in. He's saying it's not enough to have your paperwork in order. Good for you. You have to maintain a high regard for the intended durability, for the intended uh, beauty of covenant marriage. So he's sticking the legitimate grounds piece back in. And And so that's what we see in verse 32. Look at that. He says, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus says you shouldn't consider divorce as an option unless there's been sexual immorality. We'll get to what that that means, but he's establishing sexual immorality as a legitimate grounds for divorce. For now, we just need to see that we need to understand that for the disciples, this was seen as an unwelcome adjustment. Jesus takes a bar that was here, and he moves it here. Now, we forget that because as Christian readers, we just assume that the disciples were always Christians. We don't realize that they came from a very different cultural context. In first century Judaism, divorce was willy-nilly. It was w- running rampant. It was, there was a very low bar. Uh, Josephus, for example, who's really the the other most famous Jewish writer outside of uh, uh, the New Testament writers, Josephus is a Jew, is a Roman citizen, and in he spoke proudly and almost, he, he recommended divorce uh, to men in his, in his writings. There was a very cavalier attitude towards divorce in first century Judaism. And Jesus is raising the bar. And as I said, the, the disciples actually did not welcome that. They did not uh, respond positively to that. Jesus gave this uh, teaching again in Matthew 19. He gave the same high bar He gave the same single exception. And Matthew records, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. If it's going to be that hard to get rid of a a displeasing wife, it's better not to get married in the first place. You see that? The disciples thought the bar was too high. And that's because they were coming to Jesus out of a culture that set the bar too low. But actually what Jesus is doing here is just returning the bar to the place where God set it in the beginning. In the beginning, God set the bar very high. Jesus reminds the disciples of that in Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is not being an innovator here. He's being a reformer. God created marriage with the intention that it would be a lifelong, intimate relationship. It wasn't supposed to be disposable. Moses regulated and limited divorce, but he didn't advocate for divorce. He just tried to rein people in, which, by the way, is all that the law can reasonably be expected to do. But Jesus says, as my disciples, I'm expecting better from you. Now let's just stop there. One of the most important things, every once in a while you stumble across a principle that's a big rock in the Christian world, right? And you've heard me say this before, like understanding how the Old Testament and the New Testament go together, that's a big rock. Like if you want to enjoy your Bible, if you don't want to be confused every time you open it, that's like one of the things you need to nail down. Do you understand how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament? One of the other big rocks, a related big rock, you need to understand is how the law relates to Jesus. Is Jesus contradicting the law here? Is Jesus contradicting Moses? No, no, what Jesus is saying is that I can do things that the law can't. I'm gonna give you help that the law doesn't, and therefore I'm gonna expect more from you than the law did. One of the most important things for us to understand is that the law never saved anybody. That wasn't the job for the law. The law was supposed to restrain sinners. That's what it does. The law's a leash. The law's a fence. It's not medicine. It's not a miracle, right? The law is God looking down on human beings going, wow, wow, those are the new appetites, eh? That's, That's the new wisdom, is it? Wow. And so we're going to put a fence around that. We're going to make it hard for you to do all that you want to do. We're going to create some consequences for sin and stupid. And that's not going to save you. That's not going to transform your heart, but it will keep you from making an absolute wreck of your life. And so that's what the law is. It's just a restraint. But Jesus says, you understand, I'm going to do more for you than the law did. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to reprogram your desires. I'm going to put the Holy Spirit in you so that you learn to want to do that which God made you to do. Oh, and when that happens, we're going to set the bar higher. We're going to live at a higher level, right? And so this is not Jesus contradicting Moses. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to help you live better than this. We're talking about witness in the world. you understand that just keeping the law is not going to impress your friends and neighbors? You understand your friends and neighbors aren't going to come up to you and say, Hey, Joe, I noticed that you didn't kill Bob, your neighbor, who's super annoying. And I noticed you did not kill him with a tire iron. You were thinking it, but you didn't do it. Way to go, man. Do you go to church? Can I come with? That's never going to happen. Never going to happen. And your neighbor's never going to come up to you and be like, hey, Bob, I noticed that you, you, you know, you've never seduced your neighbor's wife, and she's pretty, and so good on you. Do you go to church? Can I come with? That's never going to happen. You're not supposed to kill your neighbors with a tire iron, and you're not supposed to seduce their spouses, right? That's low bar. That is not impressive to your friends and neighbors. But what Jesus is talking about here, Oh, my friends, if we could could build marriages that survive ups and downs, that survive aging and change, that press through the valley of the shadow of death and that get better and better and better and and sweeter and sweeter and sweeter over the years, you may have some of those conversations. In fact, I suspect, I very much suspect that you will. You see, there's two things that you can do if you're a true Christian that are totally, total game changers. And Jesus knows that. If you're a real Christian, if you've got a brand new heart, and, and if you've got the Holy Spirit living in you, there's two things you're capable of now that you weren't capable of under the law. You can grow and you can forgive. And you know, if you can do those two things, then your marriage can survive anything, can it? Wife, you're frustrated with your husband? Is he just a little boy who plays video games and, 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 and counts his enormous gun collection down in the man cave? Uh, and you just want to wring his neck. <laughs> hey, good news, sister. If your husband is truly saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, new heart, Bible open in front of him, you know what? He can grow up and become a man. He can grow up and become the man that God created and intended him to be. And husband, are you frustrated with your wife? Is she cold and withholding and massively critical? Does she regularly show up with an itemized list of everything that is wrong with you? Hey, good news, brother. If your sister is truly, or if your wife, who is also your sister in Christ, is truly saved, she can grow. She can change. And super great news, if you're really saved people, got the Holy Spirit in you, then you can forgive each other of all the myriad of ways you've let each other down over the years. So, yeah, it's good news for you, brother, right? <laughs> Me too. Oh, always marry a forgiving woman. That's advice I'll give you right now. But isn't that true? And so if you can grow and you can change, then you can survive Anything. And so the distinctive principle here is that followers of Jesus are going to commit to a very high bar in terms of the permanence and durability of covenant marriage, but not an infinitely high bar. that's important for us to see. Jesus does mention an exception here. We never want to be holier than Jesus, right? Never want to be more righteous than Jesus. And so if Jesus mentions an exception, we want to take note of that. Let's take a look. Verse 32, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Except on the ground of sexual immorality, Jesus says. So that's the exception. Now, the word that Jesus uses here is actually a very broad word. It's a category word. We often misremember this in the church, don't we? We think that Jesus says that the only legitimate grounds for divorce is adultery, but that's not what he says. He says sexual immorality. Well, how do we define that? Uh, More importantly, how did Jesus define sexual immorality? For that, you have to go back into the Old Testament. There is a thing in the Old Testament called the Holiness Code. Scholars debate as to whether it runs from Leviticus 17 to 25 or from Leviticus 17 to 20. It doesn't really matter. The important thing is that there is a chapters-long definition of sexual immorality. It encompasses things like adultery, incest, bestiality, and homosexuality. Those are things that are described as being hateful to God because they are against life. Remember, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So God designed sexuality to function within an intimate covenant relationship between a man and a woman, specifically for the purpose of having and raising little image bearers. Now, I want to be clear. There are other legitimate reasons to have sex within a marriage, but that connection, That context is primary in the text in terms of the original stated design. And thus, anything that departs from that or obscures that or defaces that or is opposed to that is hateful to God and destructive to human flourishing. And therefore, if your covenant partner gives herself or himself over to any of those things, then obviously you shouldn't be bound by that. You should be released and you should be free to remarry someone who has committed to God's purposes and design for human life and sexuality. And by the way, that was the function of the certificate of divorce mentioned in both of these passages, Matthew 5 and Deuteronomy 24. In that culture, a woman needed a certificate of divorce in order to legally get remarried. Now, you'll notice that in the header uh, for this section, I put a little S inside uh, quotation marks. Exception because Jesus mentions one here, but then the Apostle Paul adds another in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, before we read that, maybe we should address the issue of whether that was appropriate for the Apostle Paul. If Jesus mentioned only one, is it, is it appropriate for Paul to add another? Well, actually, the answer is yes. Because before Jesus left the earth, he authorized his apostles to flesh out and add to his word. John 16, just before Jesus was crucified, he said, I still have many other things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus says, I have more to say, but not the time to say it. Not to worry, though, because I'm gonna, when I go up to heaven, I'm going to send down the Holy Spirit. He'll go back and forth. He'll take words from me, and he'll give them to you, and by so doing, glorify me. So to be clear, the apostles are allowed to flesh out and develop the teaching of Jesus. You and I are not, right? The church is built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ as cornerstone. So the Old Testament prophets look forward to Jesus. The New Testament apostles look back on Jesus. He's the center of it all. He's the foundation. But the rest of us build up. So if pastor gets up and says, I know, I know Jesus gave one exception and the apostle Paul got two, but today's sermon is about the seven that I would add. Run. Right? That's, that's not how it works. Okay? But the, but the apostle does add an exception. So let's take a look at that. 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, It'll it'll be up on the screen, but you should mark this passage. Uh, In verses 10 to 11, the Apostle Paul repeats the teaching of Jesus. And then in verses 12 to 15, he adds to it. And he marks that. He's not being sneaky. He marks it. He flags it. He says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. So here I am, I'm adding, I'm fleshing out that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. By the way, Christians understood that a woman could initiate a divorce. New development. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Some of your Bibles will have is not bound. God has called you to peace. So here Paul adds what we often refer to as the spiritual abandonment clause. That is, if Bob and Susie get married, when both Bob and Susie are unbelievers, and then Susie becomes a Christian. But Bob doesn't want to be married to a Christian, because actually Christians are different. And Bob didn't sign up for that. And so Bob initiates the divorce. If that's the case, then Susie is free to go and is unbound. That is, she is free to remarry, though only in the Lord. Paul will add a few paragraphs later. So we have a general principle. Christians are to have an incredibly high bar for divorce. And we have two exceptions. Divorce will be permitted in the case of sexual immorality and in the case of spiritual abandonment. If you send your wife away for any reason other than those two, then you are causing her to commit adultery. Meaning if she gets remarried, which in that culture, of course, she certainly would have to, have, would have to do, If she gets remarried on the basis of a faulty divorce that you initiated, that's your responsibility. That sin goes into your account, not hers. You didn't treat your marriage vows with the high regard you ought to have as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, we probably need to and certainly should say a word here about physical abuse. Physical abuse is not specifically mentioned here as a legitimate cause for pursuing a divorce, and so Christians have different opinions about that. Let me make a few things absolutely clear. Let me say, first of all, that if your spouse is abusing you, if your spouse is hitting you, if your spouse is physically abusing you, then you should call the police now, before you leave the building today. Your second phone call should be to me or to the chairman of our elders' board, so that we can immediately open a process of discipline against your spouse. If your spouse does not repent of that behavior, we will publicly declare him or her to be an unbeliever, in which case, what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount does not directly and immediately apply to your situation because it is not, strictly speaking, a marriage of two disciples. Remember, This is Jesus withdrawing from the crowds in order to speak to his disciples about how they can live in such a way as to present a distinctive Christian witness in the world. Well, to state the obvious, if only one of you is a believer in your marriage, then that's not an option for you. So we will need to proceed with caution and wisdom and prudence. We'll need to consult other texts in Scripture. But for safety's sake, I couldn't not say that. It has to be said, and it should be said. If you are being abused this morning, call the police. Romans 13 is in your Bible, just as surely as the Sermon on the Mount. Romans 13 says, The king does not bear the sword in vain. He has been given power, authority by God to punish the evildoer. We believe in that just as much as we believe in this. All right, we've talked about the distinctive principle. Christians have a very high bar for divorce and a very high commitment to the endurance and permanence of covenant marriage. We've talked about the exceptions, and now we need to talk about the potential witness. Now, remember, this entire section is about how the disciples of Jesus can live in the world as a distinctive presence and as a witnessing presence. So the assumption is that a marriage like this, a marriage that presses through the highs and lows, a marriage that presses through the seasons that, that come, a marriage that passes through the valley of the shadow of death and gets better and better and more glorious and more beautiful over time, a marriage like that is going to say something to the watching world. So what is that? What, what does a marriage like this communicate? Now, we're gonna, if you're looking at the time and going, well, how are you going to cover this? We're going to come back to this next week. Uh, in fact, I, I felt, just as going through this, I felt like, I don't want to run through this because this is important. And in our culture, this is more important than it's ever been in living memory. So we're going to come back to this next week. We're going to do two more next week. We're just going to do one today. And you might say, when, when I give you the one, you might say, well, that's not the one I was thinking of. Well, let's come back next week. Okay? But we're going to start with the one that I, th- I think is most obvious, maybe not most important. I don't know. We could arm wrestle about that in the lobby after. I don't know. But I think it is the most immediately compelling to our culture. And so here it is. If Christians can maintain a remarkably high commitment to the permanence and durability of covenant marriage, it's going to say something to the watching world about the value and importance of children. Do you agree that our culture needs to hear that message? I don't know if you know this, but we're, we're in the middle of a fertility crisis in the Western world. Nobody's having babies anymore. And if you think about the way we teach kids about sexuality, gender, and relationships, that's not a huge surprise, is it? Most of what we teach kids today does not actually lead to babies And so I think this is going to communicate, but you may have to give it some time. Now, remember, the original design for marriage was explicitly connected by God to the having and raising of babies. God said to the first husband and wife, be fruitful and multiply. I don't know if you have a concordance, but you probably don't need it to figure out what those words mean. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So this is really actually where where the rubber meets the road. What you believe here will determine what you believe about divorce, right? I mean, think about it. That's not rocket science. There's been a massive shift in our culture in the last 50 years. In this country, in Canada, there's been a massive shift in the last 50 years, certainly in my lifetime, toward no-fault divorce in this country. We've completely changed how we approach divorce. The bar used to be very high. I would would say if you're probably over 70 uh, in, in the room today you remember when the bar was very, very high in this country for divorce. And now, of course, it's very low because we've changed what marriage is about in this country. It used to be about the kids. It used to be about children. It used to be about creating a context, a nest, as it were, in which future generations could be, could be raised and nurtured, loved, and cared for over the long haul. And so grandma and grandpa didn't get divorced, did they? Why? Well, because of the kids. But now lots of people get divorced. Why? Because it's not about the kids anymore, is it? It's about you. It's about personal fulfillment now. Are you not getting the support and encouragement that you feel you need out of your partner? Then get divorced. Does your wife not light the fires for you like she used to back in the day? Then get divorced. It's all about you now. So when Christians push through all of that, when they grow, repent, forgive, change, and improve over time, and their marriages endure and actually get better, people are going to wonder why we put in all that effort. Wouldn't it, I mean, wouldn't it be easier if we just blew the whole thing up and started over? No, we say. Why, they ask. Because of the kids. Children need a stable environment. They need to see people repenting, growing, changing, and forgiving. They need moms, and they need dads. And they need grandparents, too. I'm going to say something now that I think may be very important for some of you in this room to hear. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm not going to get divorced right now because of the kids. But once the kids are out of the house... Once, once they're married themselves, then I will. You know, I lived the first 50 years of my life for the kids. For the next 30 or 40 years, I'm living for me. Well, let me tell you something. The kids never stop needing the stable marriage of mom and dad. When your 30-year-old kids are struggling in their marriage, and brother, sister, they will. When your 30-year-old kids are struggling in their marriages, how are you going to encourage them to forgive and to grow and to change and to repent if you didn't do that? Listen, your kids are going to need your healthy marriage as much or more in the next 20 years as they needed it in the last 20 years. So work it out. Go to counseling. But you say, Pastor, I'm 70 years old, and I've been married to this one for 50 years. Okay? It's too late for us. No, it's not. No, it's not. Go to counseling. Man, what a message that would send to your grandkids, eh? Go to counseling. Your grandkids need to see you working on your marriage. They need to see you forgiving. They need to see you growing. Because if you can't do it, how are they ever going to believe that they can do it? An incredibly high commitment to the durability and permanence of covenant marriage, communicates to the world and to our kids and to our grandkids the incredible value and inestimable worth of children in the eyes of the Lord. Blessed is the man and the woman whose quiver is full of them, and blessed is the marriage that supports, nourishes, inspires, and protects them. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm I'm aware, I am aware that when we pluck this string on the tuner, a lot of hearts hurt in in a room like this. Lord, I'm I'm feeling that this morning. Lord, a lot lot of folks are going to feel like they've blown it and that they played a wrong note years ago, and there's just no coming back from that. Lord, we need to... Go to the cross and be reminded that there is no sin stronger than the blood of Jesus. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, Lord. The blood of Jesus covers all. And Lord, we need to be reminded that it's not just this string. If this is the only string that has tweaked our hearts, then we probably haven't been listening very well over the last several months. Lord, the truth is that all of us fall short There is none righteous, not even one, other than the one, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, give us hope. Give us hope in this room to say that today I'm going to repent of wrongs in the past, I'm going to receive the grace of Jesus, and I'm also going to receive help in the Holy Spirit to begin living right now in a distinctive and witnessing way. Not by might, not by power, but by your Spirit, Lord Grant our people faith. Grant us all faith for that, I pray. Lord, I'm also aware that in a room like this, there will be hearts saying, you know what, I I want my marriage to be that, but the Lord hasn't blessed us with children. And so, Lord, I'm hearing that as well. Lord, I pray for the faith of Sarah to fall on us in this place. And Lord, I do pray. I pray right now for couples that are struggling uh, to have children. I pray that their incredibly high esteem for children will give them hope, to carry on, will give them endurance, and that they will look in the Scriptures and notice how many stories in the Bible are about faith in times of barrenness and delay in conception. And then Lord, too, if maybe that season has passed, and Lord, couples are reconciling to the fact that their marriage is not going to be an incubator for children. May they understand that many things in the Scriptures are not for me, they are for us. And, and so maybe there's a calling there to come alongside really hurting, struggling moms and dads who are barely keeping their heads above water, and to be that aunt and uncle they don't have in their actual biological family. To be that grandma and grandma they don't actually have in their biological family. Lord, we are a generation right now of 25-year-olds in this community that don't have married parents, that don't have married grandparents. And so they need some spares. And so, Lord, may, may we produce those and celebrate those and deploy those for your glory, for the distinctive witness of the church, and for the care and nurture of people couples and particularly children in this church and in this city, we ask in Jesus' name.